All right. Well, we have got a lot of cool stuff to cover today, and I'm kind of excited about it. Again, this is primarily geared for new and young Christians, although I do appreciate the seasoned veteran. I won't say old, but seasoned and veteran Christians that we have here. I think Sage is our newest class member, and uh, y'all just hang on to these recordings, and you know, here in a few years, let them, let them see these. Uh, today... I won't, even, I won't even remind you what we're going to talk about, because I mentioned at the end of last week. But turn with me to the book of Jonah. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Turn or type if you uh, need a, a Bible. We've got some over there. Or if you have the Bible memorized, that's okay too. We can just roll along like that. So, <clears throat> Jonah chapter 1, we'll start in verse 7. Jonah chapter 1, verse 7, and we will read through verse 16. So y'all know the story of Jonah, right? Just kind of introductory. God told him to go speak to um, basically his enemies. He said, no way, Jose, and fled in the complete opposite direction. And And there is a storm brewing because of him. So, Jonah chapter 1, verse 7. Ridge, good to see you, sir. That's fine, that's fine. We're in Jonah chapter 1, verse 7. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, so we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us why this has happened to us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And what Of what people are you? Verse 9, I am a Hebrew, Jonah replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So by specifically referring to the God who made the sea, we understand the men's reaction in verse 10. The men were even more afraid and said to him, What have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them so. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Basically, Jonah is asking them to kill him. And the men aren't really excited about that opportunity or option. And so, verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring the ship back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Basically, Jonah's God your person has told us to do this, and so we're going we're gonna to throw him overboard, and please don't be mad at us because he told us to do that. They're trying to absolve themselves from guilt. Verse 15, so they pick up Jonah, throw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, quick recap. Why is the sea this way? What has happened to the sea and why did it get that way? 
Storming and raging? What for? Jonah's running away from God. Right. God sent this storm basically to stop him. Okay. When did the sea stop raging? When they threw Jonah into the water. Now, here's the thing. I mentioned this just a second ago while we were reading. If you read through these verses, there's no indication in the text. There's no indication in the text that Jonah knew God was going to send a large fish to rescue him. Based on what we read, I, I, I honestly think Jonah was maybe hoping, well, if, I, if these guys kill me, I still won't have to go to Nineveh. <laughs> I think that's what he was thinking. I believe Jonah was expecting to die. Something kind of like a mercy killing. But, approaching fish pun, God wasn't going to let him off the hook that easily. See what I did there? Yeah, you're going to use that in, uh, you know, next time y'all have a devotional with the teens. Yeah. God wasn't going to let Jonah off the hook that easily. It was only when, and notice here's what happened. It was only when Jonah gave himself up for dead to the mercy of the sea that God rescued him through the water. Turn to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. Richard, I see you chewing on that. That means I've, I've, I've put something interesting out there. A little juicy tidbit. Okay, Genesis chapter 7. Genesis, first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 7. We'll start in verse 11. I'll read kind of quickly, and I'll, I'll skip over just a little bit um, for the sake of time. But Genesis chapter 7, this is part of the story of Noah. I think everybody in here knows the story of Noah well enough to know that the story is more than just Noah's floating zoo. That is how it gets billed to kids, but there's more going on to it than just the floating zoo. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, etc., etc., and the windows of the heavens were opened, verse 12. The rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah with his sons, Shem and Ham and Jepheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons entered the ark. They and every wild animal of every kind and all domestic animals of every kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every bird of every kind, every bird, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah. Two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The water swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The water swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The water swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. There's all kinds of cubits in the ancient world. Generally speaking, a cubit is uh, kind of like the distance of your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. So, yeah, maybe a foot and a half. Anyway, 15 cubits deep. Verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, all human beings... 
Um, <clears throat> verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark and the water swelled on the earth for 150 days. Chapter 8, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Okay, a story we're all familiar with, but you see what has happened. I wanted us to have that there in mind. Turn with me now to the next book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, we'll start in verse 21. So while you're turning there, we saw Jonah gave himself up for dead in the water. We saw Noah and all the animals and his family there in the water. In Exodus chapter 14, we'll just read two verses here. Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. All right, so Israelites are about to march through. Okay, verse 22. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Okay. Jonah, Noah, and the Israelites. And now, let's turn to a, maybe a lesser known story, but still one that I think is pretty fascinating. Second Kings. The book of 2 Kings. All right, 2 Kings obviously comes after 1 Kings. <laughs> that comes after 2 Samuel, so if that helps you get through there. 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. We'll start in, we'll start in verse 1, but I'll summarize some of this to, again to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about all the things we want to talk about. So there's Second uh, Kings chapter 5, verse 1. There's a commander of basically an enemy nation. There's a commander of an enemy nation named Naaman. Naaman and his wife have a slave from the tribes of Israel. Naaman has a terrible skin condition. The Bible typically calls it leprosy. That's a handful of things. Uh, but it's a skin condition that is ultimately life-threatening if it goes untreated. Naaman has a skin condition. He tells his wife about it. The, en the enslaved Hebrew girl says, there's a prophet in the town of Samaria. Naaman should go to this prophet. Okay, so Naaman packs up all of these gifts. Take a look at verse 5. King of Aram gives Naaman permission to go. And then we get to verse 8. 
2 Kings 5, verse 8. Um, Elisha has heard that the king of Israel is scared because he thinks this is going to be an invasion, an attempt at an invasion. That's not the case. So chapter 5, verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king, Why have you torn your clothes? Let Naaman come to me that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even pay him the compliment of going out to see him. And Naaman is a very important person here. And he doesn't even pay him the compliment of going out to see him. When he has spent so much time and effort and energy coming with all of these gifts to give Elisha. Doesn't even bother to see him. Send a messenger. Verse 10. Send a messenger to him saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away saying, I thought that for, for me he would surely come out and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? He's starting to curse this backwater Samaria and their dirty river. <laughs> surely, surely he would have done something more impressive for me he went away in a rage. Verse 13. But his servants come up to him and say, they address him as father. It's a term of endearment uh, or respect. Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? How much more when all he said to you was wash and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a teenager. And he was clean. Okay. What do all of these stories, Jonah, Genesis, Exodus, 2 Kings, what do all of these stories have in common? Some kind of cleansing. Water. Yeah. Some kind of deliverance of sorts through water. In Exodus, we saw the passing through the water that would eventually bring new life, a new quality of life to the Hebrews. In Kings, we saw the immersion in water brought a new quality of life to Naaman. And in Noah's story here in Genesis 7, water brings death, but it also brings new life as well. Noah's story, which actually covers all of Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Noah's story is really the first story in the Bible to demonstrate this, this theme, this uh, motif. And a, a theme or motif is like a recurring pattern or an idea, a recurring idea in a story. It's the first story in the Bible to demonstrate this idea of deliverance through water. And the Apostle Peter picks up on this Old Testament theme of deliverance through water and actually compares it with baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, the letters of Peter, especially 1 Peter, is criminally underrated in the church. Last time, um, when was the last time you heard a sermon? 
out of 1 Peter chapter 3. Exactly. Although I'm afraid if I asked what was the sermon about today, I might get the same silence. Okay. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. There's some strange stuff in this verse, and we're not going to talk about all of it. But there's some other things in this verse that I think we, uh, that we can talk about. Uh, if you have questions after class, I can tell you about the strange stuff in here. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Peter is talking to them about suffering. And he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death, he, or he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. Okay, just going to go ahead and tell you, I, we're not going to talk much about the spirits in prison. That's not the point here. But verse 21, and let's back up a little bit into verse 20. In which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water, verse 21, and baptism, which this prefigured now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Now, like I said, there's a lot going on in these verses. Take a look at verse 19, just really quickly. I'll just tell you very briefly about what's happening with this weird stuff about spirits in prison. All right, these spirits are probably evil spirits to whom Jesus has proclaimed his victory over death. It's probably not the spirits of humans, probably evil spirits, especially when you consider the context of what wraps up in verse 22 where Jesus is made, you know, kind of ruler over all the spiritual domain also. Second thing is this. Between the writing of Genesis and 1 Peter, well over, well over a thousand years has passed. And during that time, many Jews thought more about the flood and believed that not just evil persons died in the flood, but also that evil spirits who prompted humans to do evil were also imprisoned, probably awaiting final judgment. So, if that helps you understand what's going on in verse 19 a little bit, great. If you're more confused, that's okay. <laughs> because... Our point is verse 21, Peter compares, well, just like Moses and just like Noah and these others who were saved through water, you Christians in the audience, you too were saved through water. Well, let me ask this question. When... To an audience of folks from the Churches of Christ, when is the first time Peter connects baptism and salvation? Somebody's got a book, chapter, and verse off the top of their head, right? Manette's given us a book. 
Acts 2, 38. <laughs> have y'all heard, the, uh, have y'all heard the, the story about the, about the lady who had the, the thief break into her house? You have? Vaguely familiar? Yeah. This, um, this lady had a thief break into her house at night, and, I mean, it was dark. She couldn't see anything. She heard him wrestling downstairs, and, um, and she couldn't. She called the police, but uh, you know, he was starting to come upstairs, and she yells, Stop! And the first thing that came to her mind was, Acts 2.38! Repent and be baptized. <laughs> and the guy freezes. And stays there until the cops come in and they see him there at the bottom of the stairs. And they ask him, what? I mean, we, it took us a few minutes to get here. Why were you still here? And he said, this crazy lady upstairs said she had an axe and two thirty eights. Yeah. Why don't you save that one for your buddies at work? <laughs> anyway. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38. There's a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. It happens 50 days after Passover. On that particular Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, the Holy Spirit fell on believers, and Peter preaches to a large crowd in Jerusalem. Many people are convicted about what Peter has to say, and then we read about Peter's response, and well, their response, and Peter's response in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they, meaning the people who were listening to Peter's speech, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, because this is a gathering of Jewish persons from all over the world who've come to Jerusalem, brothers, what should we do? But Peter said to them, repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So in these verses, in 1 Peter 3, remember, Peter's talking about Noah and how these people in Noah's time were saved through water. Peter connects these verses and this idea of saving someone through water and the Holy Spirit. If you remember, when Peter was talking in 1 Peter 3, he says Jesus was killed in the body but made alive by the Spirit or made alive in the Spirit. He's referencing the Holy Spirit there. And so we have a connection of the Holy Spirit and water and salvation. These things happen to get connected throughout the rest of the book of Acts, at least the first part of the book of Acts. Right, so in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we have baptism, spirit, and salvation. You don't have to turn there, but in Acts chapter 8, the gospel has been taken to the Samaritans. Samaritans, historically kind of enemies of uh, the Jews. 
but strangely enough, still worship the same God. The Samaritans believe the gospel, and they're baptized, but then Peter and John have to go up to Samaria and check it out and lay hands on them for them to receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, again, you don't have to turn there. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is in the middle of preaching, and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius, the first Gentile convert. It falls on Cornelius and his family. And then Peter and everybody says, Well, man, goodness, God's already forced our hand. The Holy Spirit fell on these guys immediately. Uh, let's get these guys baptized. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in jail in the city of Philippi, northern Greece. They're there, the earthquake, there's an earthquake, it breaks all the prisoners' um, chains, and then he, um, <clears throat> and then the jailer rushes in. The jailer's ready to kill himself because he knows that if the prisoners escape, he is going to get punished for it. And so the jailer's ready to kill himself, and Paul shouts out and says, hey, no, 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 we're all still here. And the guy brings in lights, it rushes in, it's in the middle of night, and he t tells uh, Paul and Silas, what, what must I do to be saved? It says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then immediately after that, they were baptized. And so regardless of the particular order, in this early history of the church, it's abundantly clear, baptism, salvation, reception of the Holy Spirit are closely connected in the minds of Jesus's earliest followers. Right. So quick survey, the book of Acts there. Is everybody following me so far? Okay. Well, I think we can run through Acts and see that. First Peter 3 passage is pretty clear. Question. Have you ever heard of the sinner's prayer? Has anybody here ever heard of the sinner's prayer? Have you heard about it? What, what basically is the sinner's prayer? What have you heard? When you pray, you're cleansed. It basically, yeah. That you've received the, the Holy Spirit. That you're, yet you're saved. <laughs> Usually there's some language like this. So the sinner's prayer, um, it's not in every kind of Baptist church. There's, all, there's a huge variety of Baptist churches, but it typifies a lot of Baptist churches. The sinner's prayer is basically a, a short prayer of confession and repentance. And you ask Jesus into your heart. And according to that tradition, you are saved. According to that tradition, you're saved. Usually, maybe weeks, months, or maybe even years, then later on, the person who said the sinner's prayer is baptized. But according to that tradition, you say that prayer and you're saved. And then later on at some point, if you want to, you can get baptized. I think, I think that's well-intentioned. And confession and repentance, absolutely good things. I think it's well-intended. But I think, I think it might miss the mark because baptism was always meant to connect us to Jesus's 
death, burial, and resurrection far more meaningfully than just this short prayer, as well intended as it is. Yeah, I, th- I think the key, and one of, probably the best passage to go to, is Romans chapter 6. So let's turn there now, Romans chapter 6. And I know we, we've had to sprint through a lot of this stuff today, but this is kind of the last big thing that I want us to, want us to look at. Part of the reason why I think... Again, as well-intentioned as the sinner's prayer is, and if any point in your faith journey you might have prayed that prayer, I think if, if it was genuine, I think God was pleased. God was pleased at your confession and repentance and longing to be united with Christ. But I think Paul shows us that, man, we really miss something if we miss the significance of baptism. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 6. We'll read the first, uh, first 11 verses here. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Paul is talking about the connection of sin and grace. And he says here in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Some people were thinking, Well, hey, sin isn't such a bad thing because the more I sin, the more grace I get, right? <laughs> Wrong. It's kind of like taking out a loan. Hey, lo- debt isn't such a bad thing because the more debt I have, that means the more money I had to borrow, right? Wrong. <laughs> okay. How can I be out of money when they have all these checks left? <laughs> <laughs> I like that, Rich. Yeah. Yeah. I used to tell my mom, too, when she would say, we can't afford something. It's like, well, mom, just write a check. Like, you have checks in your checkbook. Anyway, people treat credit cards that way, too. What shall we say, then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body, ruled by sin, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. All right. We're going to keep these verses here in front of you. We're going to roll through these. Verse 3. Verse 3. What are Christians baptized into? These are not trick questions. So, 
His death, specifically into Jesus' death. That's right. Christians are baptized into Jesus' death. Verse 4. If you've died with Jesus in baptism, what happens next? Verse 4. What does it say? You'll be raised with new life. Yeah. All right, so if you've died with Jesus in baptism, the logical next step is that you'll be raised to new life. Some of your translations might say you might walk in new life. The word walk there means live or experience. All right, verse 6. When you are crucified with Jesus in baptism, what happens to you? Verse 6. What happens to you? You're no longer a slave to sin. That's right. Because of, well, verse 7. What can't dead people do? It's kind of a cheeky question. What'd you say, Manette? Dead people can't sin. Why not? Because you're dead. Yeah. You're dead. I mean, that's Paul's point, basically. Hey, you've died. Guess what dead people can't do? They can't sin anymore. Okay. Verse 8. What will happen to you if you participate in Jesus' death by being baptized? You'll also live with him. Yeah. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says... Jesus is dead to sin. In verse 11, how does Paul describe the believer's relationship with sin? Dead to it. Dead to it. Believers, given the context, those who have been baptized with Jesus, believers are also dead to sin and alive to Jesus. And so, to summarize, the sinner's prayer is, I think, well-intentioned, but I do think it kind of misses the mark because it misses this beautiful connection that Paul has given us here. When we're baptized, we participate in, we, we share in Jesus' death, his burial, and resurrection. As we go into the water, we experience a type of death from our old ways. And as we come up out of and through the water, we experience a new kind or a new quality of life. Noah and his family were saved from death through water. The Israelites were saved and freed from slavery and death by passing through water. And Naaman, from 2 Kings 5, Naaman was saved from the destruction of leprosy through being immersed in water. All of these Old Testament salvation and you know, in all these instances, Old Testament instances of salvation and deliverance through water point us 
toward the ultimate salvation and deliverance from death and destruction through the waters of baptism in Jesus' name. And so I can't, I, I, I'm not, it's not in my nature to be aggressively dogmatic about things, but I think it's really, I think we really miss something extraordinarily meaningful and important when we treat baptism as, well, you can do it if you want to. The early church, and we rolled through Acts briefly. The book of Acts doesn't know an unbaptized Christian. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit's going to do and falls on people before they're baptized. But you, Peter's response there, he's with Cornelius. These Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, and Peter's like, oh, maybe I should shut up, and maybe we should get these guys in the water. So the book of Acts doesn't know an unbaptized Christian, and it's precisely because of this connection. In that act, you are spiritually united in his death and his burial, and more importantly, right, his resurrection. I think that that is one of the most beautiful cases for the importance and meaningfulness of baptism in all of Scripture. Yeah? Spirit and water. Yeah. Jesus being baptized as well. Yeah. Even though he didn't need it, right? What did Jesus have to repent from or, or confess? Yeah. And in that moment, too, you know, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus in a way that's visible for everybody there to see, and there's a voice, right? There's a lot we could add to. And again, I. It's not in my nature to be aggressively dogmatic, but man, I really think that if we miss out on baptism, we really miss out on something incredibly meaningful and incredibly important. And I would hate for, I'd hate for a, a new or young Christian to, to not quite catch that. I think part, so Ridge has asked the question, for the sake of the recording, Ridge has asked the question, why was Christ baptized? I think in part for an example for us, in part as a way to, um, to show his connection with some of these Old Testament patterns and things in, that, we, that we saw here. So Israel passed through the waters and were going to start their process of really ministering to all the nations. Jesus begins his public ministry only after his baptism. I think Jesus was... All the things that Israel should have been doing in terms of showing other people God's light and goodness, Jesus is kind of like the new and greater Israel, sort of showing them that. And so in a sense, when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River there, it is like Jesus passing through the Red Sea and sort of being commissioned so do you agree with Dale's statement this morning about Christ's behavior during the pandemic? <laughs> Would he touch everybody? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus has that prerogative. I don't know that I do. <laughs> so, guys, we are at time.
but I really appreciate y'all hanging in. There's a lot of lecture, not a lot of uh, dialogue, or not a lot of interaction, but I appreciate y'all hanging in there with us.